from the lovely Napa Valley, America's premier wine-growing region. I'm Adam Teeter. And uh, in Seattle, Washington, I'm not going to append anything there. I'm Zach Jamal. <laughs> and this is the Vine Bear Podcast. And I mean, I, you know, I'm, I think that is that is the tagline, right? Napa Valley, America's premier wine-growing region or something like that. I think, I think you got it right. There's yeah. a big old sign, a couple of them. So, yeah. you know. If you get confused, welcome to America's fine wine region. So I'm I'm out yeah. here for for work, uh, yeah, doing a bunch of meetings. Um, no drinking, I'm sure, right? Oh, no wine. I, yeah, but I'll talk about it on the next podcast. I feel like I've, I've just I've kind of just gotten here, gotten settled. So there's a lot to do. Um, so that that will not be my my update for for this Monday. But uh, but you know, before we talk about me, Zach, let's talk about you. What what have you been up to? What have you been drinking? Good question. Um, so a couple of things. You know, I have uh, I have returned from Hawaii. Yes, gotten uh, back here, settled, done all that stuff, and I think I the the two things that I had really missed on this trip, uh, which was you know great in a lot of ways, definitely drank some interesting things, but you know you just kind of naturally for a variety of reasons were kind of my, my drinking was more. Mm-hmm. Cir- not circumscribed. I certainly drank plenty, but it was just more oriented around different priorities than it might be back home. And so the two things that I've really been kind of enjoying since being back, one is obviously uh, being back with my full bar at home. Yeah, uh, that's always which, you nice. know, I brought definitely packed some stuff that we took to Hawaii. Um, I packed bar tools. I packed some bottles uh, because, you know, I can't really live for 10 days without at least being able to make a few cocktails. But right. being able to come home and really kind of get into it in the way I wanted to is is really nice. And so a couple of things that I've made at home recently that I've been really enjoying, been really on a sort of, I guess you would call it a Manhattan kick, because I, I feel like sometimes I when I make drinks at home, I, I make a thing that's like, I think you could kind of make an argument is like, is this a Manhattan? Is it like, arguably almost more of an old fashioned? Because I think in most of these cases, I'm thinking of, yes, I'm using some amount of vermouth. So I think the sort of natural argument would be, well, okay, that's definitely a Manhattan, or it's, mm-hmm. it's more of a Manhattan than it is an old fashioned. On the on the flip side, I think I've been using a lot when my whatever the whiskey drink I'm making, <laughs> we choose to call it, is I've made um, a fair bit before I left of um, some grenadine, you know, actually from pomegranates. Oh, wow. And Fancy. I just... Well, it's actually really simple, but but so good. And like, talk about something that takes your any cocktail that you might put it in just like up a level without a whole lot of work. Because you can buy nice grenadine; it's true. Although I find it to be just kind of like it's real expensive. And like, mm-hmm. if you can get a pomegranate that's not that expensive, I also don't use that much. So like, do I need a eight ounce bottle of grenadine? Like, probably not. I need like three ounces to get me through the entire winter. But it does just like add such a nice note to cocktails. Um, in particular, I find whiskey cocktails, although it goes great with other spirits too. And the thing that I love about it is it adds like the kind of, you know, even what even though it's a sugar syrup and so it's sort of sweet, you do get a lot of kind of tart and bitter characteristics from the pomegranate pips mm-hmm. when you sort of boil them in sugar water. And it just lends like another note to whatever the cocktail I'm making, whatever we're going to call it, which is usually, you know, a good amount of either bourbon or rye, uh, a little bit of sweet vermouth, a little bit of grenadine, and then usually some bitters. And sometimes I get a little wild and throw like a little splash of something else in there. Maybe it's a little splash of uh, blended scotch, or maybe it's a little splash of uh, 
of Amaro, kind of done a little little bit of different things. But like that that cocktail basic configuration has been a kind of like almost almost nightly thing for me over the last week. Um, and then the other thing is like I didn't drink a lot of beer on the trip. Um, despite what you would think, and despite like the staggering popularity right. of, in particular, uh, you know, beers from Kona Brewing and stuff, I, we did go to a brewery a couple times, which was fun—a a local brewery in in Hilo. But I didn't drink a lot of beer; it was just more wine and spirits because of variety of things, or beer, uh, wine and cocktails. But I've been drinking a lot of beer again. It feels like kind of a mid-winter thing for me, including a really delicious bottle from my my small beer collection of um there's a Fremont Brewing here makes every year uh they make their B bomb which is their like big like super rich imperial stout type thing mm-hmm. that's like bourbon barrel aged blah 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 i mean i say blah blah it's it's good and we had a bottle of, of it uh the other night and it's just like toffee and rich and coffee and chocolatey and like a good beer to have when it's like 34 degrees out so yeah that's been me how about you adam so i uh went to washington dc our nation's capital last weekend with naomi to do like a fun little weekend away um and i had not been to dc in a really long time um and i have to say it's gotten pretty cool like The food and dining scene has, sorry, the food and drink scene has just really leveled up. Um, There are a lot of people in the scene now making really great drinks, uh, just really great food. I had one of the best meals I've had in a really long time at Bresca, which is uh, in DC on like 14th Street. Uh, It was just like, it was dope. Like it was just such an awesome experience. Uh, Will Patton is the beverage director there, and um, he and Sara, who's his, um, we sat at the bar. And I love sitting at the bar, by the way. Um, and Sara, who's his head bartender, and he like just were so awesome to talk to all night. And they made incredible cocktails for us. Well, for me, they made a, a pretty good uh, non-alcoholic one for for Naomi. Um, but the it was like you know they kind of do. Uh, tasting menu but it's not it's not like insanely foofy if that makes sense like it's very chill and down to earth and i had probably the best duck i've had in a really long time so that was just that was super cool to see i also had these really incredible cocktails at allegory which is a cocktail bar inside of um the hotel i was staying at the eaton hotel which is also really fun like kind of felt like a weird blend between like the ace and I don't know, maybe the Hoxton for people who know those kinds of brands, but very accessible. And this was a real, it was like, it was a speakeasy, but not a speakeasy. Like it was, you know, you had to wait and go into a door that was in the lobby. And then they had these really cool paintings on the walls. And, um, you know, it is interesting though, how trends kind of go from one city and then come to another city. So the, the cocktail bar definitely had like the menu definitely had like a lot of clarified cocktails, which were definitely all the rage in New York, like five years ago. Um, where everyone was clarifying everything. And that was happening at, at um, Allegory. And I remembered how much I love clarified cocktails. You know, like when they when you make sort of like a, a milk punchy type thing, um, it just gives the drink like this roundness to it that uh-huh. you wouldn't get 
in its original form. And there was this one cocktail on the menu that like literally tasted like, uh, did you ever have when you were a little kid Flintstones push up pops? Oh, did I ever? And that's what this cocktail tasted like. And they served it in, they carbonated it and served it in a soda bottle. So they, they brought it to you in the soda bottle. And then you, they had like a branded allegory bottle opener and you pop the cap and you just, and I drank it and it was, I was like, holy shit. I'm like sitting outside in the heat after like running through the sprinklers or something, drinking a Flintstones push up pop. <laughs> it, was, yeah. it was so cool. Um, but yeah, I just think there's, there's just like a ton of stuff happening there. We, got to go to um this this cool place called imperfecto um you know there's like a lot of, there's a cool like sort of latin scene happening in in dc as well like uh we went to the, there's like this whole new like latin market that opened or south american market that opened in the same area as uh as union market and there was that we went okay. to this like tequila focused place for like or agave focused uh bar for lunch called destino that was really special you know, everything was really, really cool. Like I had this crazy whole roasted fish at Amazonia. Like just, I was very, very, very impressed by everything. Um, you know, and I, and I was saying Naomi had the best non-alcoholic cocktail she's had since she's been pregnant. So this amazing woman who was the, the, she's the bar director of this, of this place called Michelle's in DC. Her name was Judy. She made Naomi a martini. But she used like olive brine and caper juice and like all this stuff that tasted like a dirty martini. And then she used wow. it was Zach, it was awesome. And I was cool. just like, and you know, she she said to us, she's like, Yeah, I mean, most bartenders sort of um, you know, thought process when they go to non alk is like make it sweet. And that's why a lot of people don't like non alcoholic cocktails. Cause like I if I'm gonna drink lemonade, I'll just order lemonade. Sure. Right. And she created this cocktail that was savory and martini-esque while having none of that in it. Just a little bit of like, you know, a non-alcoholic spirit. Um, But not a lot, actually. It was more like all the things that she played with because she plays a lot with like juice, like juices and extractions and stuff that was able to create this cocktail that really felt like a cocktail. It didn't feel like we were drinking. Like I tried it, right? I was like, oh, was it just like Naomi's drinking olive brine now? And that's not what it was. It was it was super cool. So I'm super high on DC, man. Like people should go. I think that there's just a lot of there's even more fun places happening there that I didn't get to check out. Apparently, Death and Company is about to open in DC too, which is kind of crazy. Um, I, I think it's 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 a much more exciting city than it has been in the past. And I also was really blown away by how much of a community feel it is. Like everyone I talked to, because like I said, I sat at the bar a lot was all about like propping up other places everyone had like a list for me oh you should go here you should go here you should go here these places make this awesome these places do this great like i just don't feel like that you see you see that as much in new york anymore um people are much more competitive and this was a like no we all rise together type mood and the other thing i saw in dc that was really cool is a lot of the especially at, at the bars right um and these are at restaurants but at the restaurant bars a lot of the menus would not only list the entire team on the menu, but also like what member of the team created what drink. Mm-hmm. And I thought that was really amazing. So it was like giving credit to everyone on the team, not just like the famous or, you know, famous bar director, yeah. right? It's not just their program. It was like everyone's program. And it's about everyone having their own menu and their own drink. And I just, I really love that. It, it just felt 
very warm and fuzzy and a and it was just it was very nice. So I I, I really enjoyed DC. Now I'm out here in Napa. Awesome. So yeah. you want to kick us off for today's topic? I do. Well, so it's funny because I I know last week we talked a little bit about how there's a way in which like when it's just you and me doing the pod, it has like a little bit of a a throwback feel for you and me, I think. And I was thinking about this question, which was prompted uh, by a reader uh, and listener uh, who emailed it in. And um, uh, Joel Velasquez, thank you, Joel, so much for sending in this question. He basically said, like, asked sort of like, why is it that even as Burgundy as a region, like, continues, I mean, they continue to struggle with, like, climate change related issues, but in, like, the marketplace sense, like, they you know, Burgundy is still super hot. People want it. It's not just uh, even just like the Grand Cru Burgundy is the really well-known ones, but you're seeing because maybe as those have gotten more and more expensive, you're seeing more and more demand for, uh, you know, Premier Cru and Village wines and wines from lesser known villages or places that might not have been uh, thought of as well. And yet Bordeaux is struggling. The winemakers there are basically um, sort of agitating towards the French government to basically either provide them with more financial support or basically talking about destroying some amount of uh, existing stock or uh, ripping out vineyards, et cetera, because basically the price for their wines has dropped. And, and, you know, he kind of wanted us to go into why is this like, why is there this huge dichotomy between these two iconic French regions? And this is giving me the warm fuzzies. Cause like, like we used to talk about Bordeaux and Burgundy on the podcast. And then like, you know, those other podcasts on, on the Vine Pair podcast network, like wine one, one came on and yeah. Keith does such a great job talking about these things that in some ways, you know, we don't get to sort of dive into, I mean, it's a kind of a newsy story. So we get to talk about it, but I was like, Oh man, I remember when we would just like talk about Bordeaux yeah. <laughs> uh, back in like 2019. Anyhow, a little throwback for us so do you have thoughts on this like on, on kind of the basic question as posed here i mean i think that the problem is that so first of all burgundy has just become all the things have worked for burgundy at the same time right you had the rising natural wine movement and yeah. natural wine decided to scoop up burgundy and say that all the wines from burgundy were natural um i mean I, a lot of them are made sustainably, you know, native yeast fermentation, all that stuff, but like they're clean. So let's not call them natural. Let's call them good. But uh, anyways, you know, so they, that got scooped up. Then you had, you, you have on top of that, like the, the just general consumer and trend in wine going towards acid, right? So fresh fruit acidity, which Pinot Noir has in, you know, spades, you, also have people looking for like wines that are able to drink young which burgundy can also do which you know a lot of we talked about this as well with napa cab like some of these wines just they can't they just can't they're just not as delicious the the tannins are way too aggressive they're you know they're too big they just don't work and burgundy is able to even at a higher price point be really delicious when i mean Almost every list I, I look at now, I, I know I talk about this on the podcast a lot. I see tons of Burgundy on the list across the country. And it's always like the vintages. I, I don't think you, I, I see a vintage older on most lists than like 2018. Yeah. You know, everyone's drinking young Burgundies. And if you saw like 2018, 2019 Bordeaux, you'd just be like, no, 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 That's not ready. <laughs> like, not unless you want to have your, the enamel ripped off your teeth. So yeah. I think that's also what's happening here. And I do think that like Burgundy has is has 
reemerge in people's minds as that status wine. Like Burgundy yes. is like the ultimate status wine. And Bordeaux isn't. I think that's also because a lot of the wine professionals of the last decade or so have not been that interested in Bordeaux because we've talked about this on previous podcasts. It's the same thing. You don't want to drink what your parents drank. Yeah. And Bordeaux Bordeaux is Bob's wine, man. Bob Parker loved Bordeaux. Bordeaux is what made him famous. You know, he correctly or incorrectly, however you want to believe it, people think, you know, the the mysticism behind the rise of Robert Parker is that he picked a vintage as excellent before anyone else did. Yeah, everyone and, thought 82 would suck and he said it would be good and uh, he was presumably proven to be right. Exactly. Not that I tried a lot of 82 Bordeaux. But. No, but that made his career, right? And yeah. That made people of his generation, because again, we listen to people of our generation wine, <laughs> pay attention. And Bordeaux became a wine that people's parents drank. And Bordeaux, you know, be- became everywhere. And I think for for that reason, there's a rejection. Now, there's one other thing, though, which I think no one likes to talk about, but which is true. There are over 7,000 wineries in Bordeaux. Yep. 7,000. I think the last stat I saw in the U.S. was like, we're maybe around 8,000 or 9,000 in the entire country. Mm-hmm. 7,000 in Bordeaux. What does that mean? That means there's a lot of shit Bordeaux on the market. And there was a lot of shit Bordeaux pumped into the United States and other places in the 80s and 90s when Bordeaux was becoming super popular when all Robert Parker was writing about was the classified growths, yeah. of which there are not – there's less than 100 but everyone was like, there was this craze, right? I mean, I've seen Bordeaux served on planes out of plastic bottles. Yeah. You know, like, and so there's just a, there was just a lot of bad stuff. And I think all of that combined, and there's just not a lot of Burgundy. There are not a lot of Burgundy producers. The land is very expensive in Burgundy. You know, a constrained supply means demand. It means status. It means all those things. Bordeaux can equal, you know, can equal demand at all times. And if you really start looking into Bordeaux, if you really start looking into Bordeaux, it's all a bit shady, right? <laughs> like, right? Wow. Though the fact that, like, I mean, we talked about this before as well. The fact that if you're a classified first growth and you buy a new vineyard, that vineyard just also becomes first growth growth vineyard. Yeah, right. Well, you can keep your you can keep growing your supply as a classified yes. first growth. Also, because the classification system, which we don't even have to get into now, is also bullshit. It was for a world's fair that no one cared about. But oh, then but I have, I'm sure you oh. have lots of thoughts. <laughs> yeah, which I can't wait to hear. But like, yeah, that's why it's all those things. I think actually the biggest explanation for this is that there's just a shit ton of Bordeaux on the market, and that's true both kind of across all quality classification levels, just as you said, Bordeaux is a much, much, much larger growing region than Burgundy. And also like even the high-end wines, there's, there can be a lot of it produced because as you pointed out, like the production is less constrained by a single plot of land and is tied to the, you know, the sort of domain, the, Mm -hmm. the, frankly, the brand that makes it. And those things can be, as you said, grown by, by, vineyard acquisitions they can be uh eliminated by or they can be split they can be eliminated if uh, one classified growth is purchased by another etc like there's just a lot of kind of finessing of it and yeah as you said the origins of it are you know frankly antiquated the the real dirty secret of all this is that the uh 
the thing that this was based on, which was the sort of selling price for these wines in 1855, which itself would be kind of, you'd argue what possible relevance could that have now. It was also a pre-phylloxera Bordeaux where the plantings were completely different. I mean, it was mostly Malbec at the time. Um, And so really it's like any adherence to that system is sort of, I mean, it's an anachronism or it would be a cute anachronism if it wasn't also a huge determinant of price. Mm -hmm. But the other thing is like the first growth Bordeaux wines are just available, man. Like they're out there. You can go to Total Wine and buy them. And you can buy them and they put them on special sometimes. (laughs) Yeah. And it's just like people still buy them. And honestly, I've tried some of them and some of them are really fucking good. Like this is not meant to throw shade at some of the great wines from Bordeaux. I actually buy for my own personal consumption and collection, I buy more Bordeaux than I do Burgundy. Now, some of that's because Caitlin is not a big fan of Burgundy, so it makes it easier for me to not mm-hmm. go that route, although I do like it from time to time. But it is also just the truth that, like, the there isn't the cachet of, like, this wine came from this tiny, delimited plot of land with this few number of vines on it, and you can just know that there's only so much of it in the world, right? Like, there are only... 2,000 bottles of this wine made. Not an unknown number that, you know, sure, the producer probably knows just how much first growth X they've made, but do you as the consumer? Probably not. And so it's harder to kind of understand or know what is driving the prices to where they are. And yeah, I think you make a great point that Bordeaux is a previous generation's wine. And it's now, unfortunately, stuck not just as a previous generation's wine in some way, but sort of in this unfortunate stylistic middle ground wherein it's never going to give you the kind of, well, not never, but most cases is not going to give you the kind of power, you know, sort of fruit concentration and depth of flavor that say like Napa cab will give you, but it's, but it's not as much in my eyes, at least. And obviously some Bordeaux lovers and other people would argue with this contention. It's not as sort of terroir driven or um, sort of, it doesn't evoke a sense of place quite to the extent that you would argue that the great Borg, uh, the great Burgundy does. Mm-hmm. And so it's kind of like, it is a little bit like, who is this wine for in the American market? And yeah. I think that is reflected more broadly in the French market and the global market. And obviously, the French wine market is not something that I either of us have a lot of expertise in, so it's based just on things I've read. But obviously, the the growers and producers in Bordeaux are you know, having these issues, and their biggest market is presumably still France. Yeah, France and then China. <laughs> but I mean, I think – yeah, I also – I think when you just think about all of the trends, right, like – Bordeaux also was a steakhouse wine. And yes, steakhouses are coming back, but they're not they're not the big like night out anymore is not always the steakhouse, you know? And that leaves less places for Bordeaux to sort of own the conversation. Cause I think, you know, on the West Coast, the steakhouse wine is for sure Napa Cab. Yeah. And like you cross the Mississippi River and you come over to the east and where we pay a little bit less of a markup because it's quicker to get the wine over. Steakhouses are dominated a lot by Bordeaux. They used to be, you know, and now they're not as much. Now, I mean, like, the I think one of the really great examples of this in New York City is Hawksmoor. Like, if you go into Hawksmoor, which is this British steakhouse that came over, and they have a beverage director who, you know, used to be at Rebel and Pearl and Ash, right, in these very trendy wine bars in New York City that were owned by Patrick Capiello, uh, and her list is 
all high acid stuff. Like, yeah. And because she knows what people actually want to drink and they kind of don't care if it goes perfectly with the steak anymore. Like they'd rather drink wines they want to drink and also have a steak. And so I think, yeah, Bordeaux is, is kind of suffering the way that in, in terms of the way that cuisine is just moving and personal preferences, et cetera. And I really don't think that people understand why it should be, why it should cost what it is. As you said, like, it's just, it's not for everything. It's too confusing to consumers. And also when everyone celebrates Bordeaux, just going back to this one point, when you see these like wine professionals, even call them influencers who are talking about Bordeaux, where what they're always posting are old fucking bottles. I mean, let's think about this, right? Eric Asimov had this article he wrote in the New York Times recently about how he went to this dinner and they had all these amazing Bordeaux and they had Petrus and like, I don't know, some, some other just crazy shit. And what was it all from? They were World War II bottles. Yeah. That was that was like what was so amazing is he was drinking Bordeaux from World War II. Like, but, he, but when does Eric Asimov of the New York Neat, Times – dude. <laughs> yeah. Like also, come on, dude. Really? But yeah. also when does Eric Asimov from the New York Times write about just current vintages of Bordeaux? Never. Yeah. Never. He's interested in the really old stuff. And that's the that's the thing, right? Like that is what has been prized in Bordeaux. And like none of us have time for that shit. Yeah. I don't have time to hold a bottle of Bordeaux for 20 or 30 years until it's delicious. Like this is just continual themes. And so I think yeah. that's one of the biggest reasons why – it's just going to continue to fall out of favor, and then you just can't discount that there's just there's just so much on the market, and no one really understands it. And like, is this shat? Also, do you know many classification systems? So this is this is also how Bordeaux screwed itself. So I think some people who listen to the podcast know that I actually like one of the first things in wine, uh, like professional achievements. I was I won like the national competition for blind tasting of Bordeaux, which is kind of stupid, but I won the Bordeaux Cup. Um, so I, I got to know Bordeaux very well. And uh-huh. the problem with Bordeaux is like what a lot of the wineries decided is, okay, we didn't make it into the 1855 classification. So we're going to create other classifications. Yeah. Like there's yep. so many other classifications. So like a consumer sees Cru Bourgeois. What the fuck does that mean? Another, another consumer sees, sees like, you know, first crop. Bordeaux Superior. What, or, yeah. what do these mean? Like yeah. no one understands. And Bordeaux's like, well, we're not allowed to be in this classification. So we need to have something of our own. It's like, no, man, maybe you don't. Like maybe you well, don't. I mean, it's one of these things where it's like, yeah, you have, you have the like, the classified growths in the Omedoc on like the left side of the Gironde that date back to 1855. Then as you said, like some of the other well-known appellations, like on the right bank, like Saint-Emilion have their own classification system, but now some of the, like the highly classified wines or the top classified wines and that have like pulled out of it. it it's a mess. And it's a mess in a very French way. Like it's, I, you know, I kind of appreciate it from a distance just for it's like inherent messiness, but like you would think that it's true that Burgundy, to come back to this point of comparison, benefits from a something of a unified classification system, if nothing else, right? Like you have your sort of mm-hmm. uh, just sort of Bordeaux appellation, you have your individual villages, which you can appellate as, and of course your Premier and your Grand Cru vineyards. And look, there are lots of problems with the Burgundian classification system. It's also very old. It does not respond to kind of current 
ideas about a lot of these vineyards you know it's it they're you know it's based on shit that monks did hundreds of years ago it's kind of unclear why it should be relevant but from the lens of a consumer and even from professionals it's cohesive and comprehensive in a way that just bordeaux is not and bordeaux if it i mean it's an impossible thing so i'm not even going to waste much time on it but like if it were possible to start over from scratch and come up with some kind of classification system that truly assessed the quality of these wines and applied to them across the entire appellation maybe that or the entire region i should say maybe that would be a way to change the conversation around bordeaux but again i that as you mentioned with the many thousands of producers there that's just never going to happen and the last thing I will say about this, though, which is, I think, a one positive note for Bordeaux, or two positive notes. One is that they do seem to be a little bit more willing to innovate and adapt. There was news in the last couple of years about sort of at least trying out some uh, non-traditional varieties in Bordeaux with a recognition that some of the classic varieties of the region may not be suitable for cultivation, certainly in some areas, as climate change continues to take hold so you know at least they're thinking forward in a way that like you know burgundy is not discussing planting syrah instead of pinot noir in some of these vineyards not yet at least (laughs) the the other is that as just a pure consumer of wine as a person who enjoys drinking it what bordeaux does have is maybe because of this confusion maybe because the market has gotten softer is actually a really remarkable opportunity to drink quality Bordeaux that's not like super old, I don't think, but that you can find bottles from you know the mid-2010s pretty easily in a lot of places. They're not always hard to get your hands on. They're often relatively affordable. And they're not like we're not talking about like just kind of junky, you know, $15 Bordeaux that is also out there. But we're talking about like sometimes even classified growth. Yeah, not first growth, maybe not second growth. But you know, those differences are kind of in the eye of the beholder in the first place. And you can get really delicious bottles with decent amount of age on them for like 40 50 bucks retail if you look around obviously that's not easy to do in some places and you kind of got to know where to look but i was always astonished as a buyer what i could find for reasonable prices in bordeaux and and enjoyed putting one or two of them on my list for the person who came in and dined who just was a bordeaux lover for whatever reason and, and sort of enjoyed having a an interesting bottle that maybe was eight to ten years old that was 80 or 90 bucks on a restaurant list, which yeah. is, you know, a cool trick that Bordeaux can do because of its size. I think that's true. And look, I, I think I do. I think that Bordeaux wines are beautiful. You just have to, you know, look around. You have to sort of trust your wine merchants, you know, et cetera, because there is just so much. Um, but there are, there are, as you said, values. I mean, I remember one of the things that we used to love to do is go into, um, we talked about this before on the podcast, I think like Keith taught me this, like going into these liquor stores in New York city that used to always have Bordeaux because it would sell. And you could just find these incredible bottles sitting on their shelves with lots of age because people had stopped buying them that were still very affordable. And as you said, you, you have to know where to look, but because Bordeaux is so large, there's a lot of it out there. And I think too, if you're like, if you're interested in getting into sort of collecting or tasting older wine, you're willing to like play around on some of these online sites where people are selling, you know, are auctioning stuff off. You can find Bordeaux that is still very affordable, even at, even on the secondary market that you can buy and try older wine and sort of understand what happens to Cabernet when it ages, et cetera. But um, I think as a, is an everyday sort of high-end wine that people are, are going gaga for. It's just, it's not it anymore. You know, it's, yeah. it's fallen out of favor. And 
it got it got high on its own supply. You know, it it rode the Parker wave and got way too big. And now I think a lot of consumers just don't look to it anymore. And Burgundy has the opposite problem. You can't people they, they can't make enough of it. You know, people want Burgundy like crazy right now. And I think that that will continue to sort of grow as well. I think that also what you're going to see is that the the regions that will benefit from Burgundy's rise will be regions that are not necessarily in France. There'll be regions, though, that create fine wines that also have that sort of high acid profile. We've talked about it, but Barolo, Barbaresco, I think Etna, we're seeing stuff happening in, Men- you know, in Mencia. These kinds mm-hmm. of wines are what people want. They just yeah, and of course, you know, Pinot Noir here domestically, exactly in certain places, etc. That's why it's performing so well, right? You're like yeah. stuff happening in Sonoma and Oregon, like people. That's what people really want to drink right now. Now, the next generation, you know, I don't, I don't know what my future child and your two kids are going to want to drink. You know, they're probably not going to want to drink these wines because we drank them. This is how yeah, it works. Not. This is how it works. Can't you? Can, I just can't wait till they're all like cocktails suck. <laughs> and like who yeah. knows what they drink no they're just they're all just going to inject something into their like i probably you know i think they're going to just they're just going to vape alcohol I totally think. something is you would be able to take a pill and feel drunk yeah <laughs> that's gonna oh, be good. what it is and then another pill and stop feeling drunk that actually doesn't sound too exactly bad. and like no hangover like it yeah. makes you social <laughs> and then you take the pill when you're done and it just like stops nice oh, that'd be so oh, anyways that on a on that note uh uh, everyone have a great week. I will uh, be back in the office soon. And uh, Zach, I'll talk to you on Friday. Sounds great. Thanks so much for listening to the Vine Pair Podcast, the flagship podcast of the Vine Pair Podcast Network. If you love listening to this show, or even if you don't, but I really hope that you do, as much as we really do love making it, then please drop us a review or a rating wherever it is that you get your podcast, whether that be iTunes, Spotify, Stitcher, anywhere. If you are listening to this on a device right now through an app, however you got this audio, please drop a review. It really helps everyone else discover the show. And now for some totally awesome credits. So the Vine Pair podcast is recorded in our New York City headquarters and in Seattle, Washington in Zach Chabal's basement. It is recorded by Zach, mastered and produced by Zach. He loves all the credit. Keep giving it to him. Drop his name in the reviews. He's going to love hearing how much you love him. It is also recorded in New York City by our tastings director, Keith Beavers, who is the managing director of the entire VinePair Podcast Network. I'd also love to give a shout out to our editor-in-chief, Joanna Sherino, who joins us on every single podcast as our third and most important host. Thank you as well to the entire VinePair staff and everyone who's been involved in making VinePair as special as it's become. Thanks again for listening, and we'll see you next week.